Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Welcome back, folks. Another exciting episode of Dollars and Sensibilities, but this time we are coming to you together from the offices of McBride Wealth Management on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Andrew Martz, but today he has graced us with his presence in the flesh, returning to his stomping ground from his company, WIS Advisors Home Office in Dallas, Texas. Andrew, welcome back. I feel like the band is back together. <laughs> right? Jake and, Jake and Elwood Blues. Martz, Martz and McBride taking over Wait, Hollywood. Who's Jake? Who's Elwood? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I know who Martz and McBride are, and it feels good to be back on the strip. Uh, it feels like, dare I say, the good old days, um, where this, th- this is the birthplace of the Dollars and Sensibilities podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> the... the- the, the view, looking at palm trees, looking at the Hollywood Hills, looking at Los Angeles. Um, yeah, fantastic episode. And may I, may I even tease a little bit, like kind of a, a appropriate setting for today's episode and the things we are going to talk about. Absolutely. Right. So we've got some big, but this is the Hollywood edition and we've got some big Hollywood news this week. And look, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was like, all right, this is a financial podcast, right? And we can go off the rails a little bit and talk about some things. And and then I went, I started thinking about, well, we know what we're going to talk about, right? The Oscars, the slap heard around the world, all that. That's going to be first, but and, uh, well, let's just jump. Let's jump into yeah. it because it, listen, we are not the first person to have a hot take or the Monday morning opinion of what occurred just last weekend. There's no mix-up of opinions. If you are the only person still living under a rock out there, this weekend at the Oscars live on television, uh, as Chris Rock, the comedian, was was presenting an award. He made a joke towards Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, and that joke crossed a line, apparently, uh, in which Will Smith got up and defended his wife and smacked. I mean, it was an open palm, like front hand smack in the face. And Will Smith is not a small man. Mm. He is a very large (laughs) and strong man. Uh, You could hear it. And then made sure his opinion was was known to Chris, uh, Chris Rock, to the entire audience, and literally now the entire world. Yeah. So yes, the the smack heard round the world. Now, sh- to your point, should this be a who's right, who's wrong? Right. There's there's plenty of opinions out there about that. I I think what I take from this is. Um, <clears throat> For me, I see both sides, right? I I see the side of like, hey, when you say something and you run your mouth, you better be ready to handle the consequences, which might be a smack across the the face. 
and you play with fire, sometimes you get burned. The other hand, I see the point, uh, and a lot of comedians are taking the side of Chris Rocca, which is like, hey, he's, he's a professional comedian. Part of the comedic art is to push boundaries and poke fun and things of that nature. So now all of a sudden, like, is this going to change comedy? Are people going to, are comics going to have to change their style and what they say and who gets offended? And the biggest question for me was like, will will people in comedy clubs in Nebraska or Chicago or all over the country now feel like if a comic starts to roast them during a set and kind of crowd work and, and do that, can they just get up and, and punch and smack somebody? Yeah, I, I think we, uh, I hope we can all agree that this this should be an anomaly of an, of an event, right? And I just looked at it as we're preparing for the for this podcast and I'm going, where where's the, how can we draw some kind of conclusions? And, you know, prior to even thinking about the podcast, I looked at Will and, you know, we joked about the uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air opening on the last episode, right? Just coincidentally, right? right? And I'm from Philadelphia and, you know, I hung out with Will back in the day one night and uh, good guy, that's not the point here. What I... My first instinct, Andrew, was... That was the most subtle oh, yeah. drop. Yeah. Like, ah, I hung out with him. I mean, once, because we're all from Philly, and like, you know. I'm telling you. We hung. It, no big it, deal. Was, it was actually a really fun night. You know, I helped him... Uh, now that now this feels like a Hollywood it podcast. Is, right? yeah, well, Name dropping. <laughs> the full story was, uh, you know, a friend of mine was used to ride motorcycles with Will, and I managed a golf shop, and so I, you know, I closed the doors, and, you know, he said, hey, I'm going to bring Will over, and we're going to do some shopping with the with the doors closed and we just hung out all night and you know he bought an ungodly amount of golf equipment and like the swing analyzer that we had in the shop like for the customers he's like how much is one of those for my house you know it's like freaking nuts dude anyway anyway great great guy but i thought to myself as i as i as i watched the slap herd around the world i was like man that's so philly right and and I, and, and I'm not saying this, you know, to my Philly friends listening, right? Like, I love you. You, you have to understand that Philadelphia is, is, a, is a different kind of town. I'm sure everybody feels that, you know, Chicago or Los Angeles is a different kind of town, and they are. But it's a little rougher, right? And there's, there's this, Will is a multimillionaire in Hollywood now with a, um, uh, an excellent reputation for being a kind, gentle soul. But at this point, you took the boy out of Philly and it got his Philly up. You know how you people hear people say you get my Irish up or get my Italian up or, you know, that kind of thing. And there's an inherent primal instinct in what he did, right? Agree with it or not. It's beside the point as we related to finance. I thought there was three things in all this First of all, you take the boy out of Philly. We talked about money scripts, right? When you're growing up and you learn somebody says something about your girl, you you fire back, right? Maybe you resort to physical violence. Is that what you know a mature adult does? In, you know, in in terms of processing and critical thinking and addressing a, a problematic situation, probably not, right? But what P Diddy came out and said about it: Hey, we all make mistakes. Let's move on. I get that too. But the context, right, this, this, this slap and then his Oscar speech afterwards, it, all these things together, Andrew, I found when it comes to investing, 
we often resort to our primal instincts of fight or flight, right? We'll sit right. in there and he's faced with a situation where he doesn't know what to do and he makes that guttural reaction. That primal instinct kicks in to resort to something drastic, maybe you know something physically violent, um, making the mistakes and moving on, like P. Diddy said, right? That, I think, is a good lesson. When you, when you do something in investing, sometimes you make a mistake, right? What can you do? You can talk about it like, like everybody's going to be talking about uh, on the internet for the next you know, 30 years, uh, but certainly for the next three weeks, right? You, you can talk about it for all you want, but if you want to be successful, you have to move on. And then the one mistake marring a lifetime, I, I really just thought, you know, what a shame it is for Will. And, but I, I know, again, relating it to a, an investment portfolio, I know I've made mistakes, right? And I think about them. I think about uh, EISQ, <laughs> which is the stock I bought back in 1999, right? I, I think about it all the time, even when I'm buying another stock that's you know of a similar asset class or a similar price even. These things are ingrained in our head. But what we have to do is when we make a mistake, we've got to A, move on, and B, recognize that this might have been from a a a, a primal instinct that we didn't deny for the moment, but need to be cognizant of in the future. That's a great point. And it reminds me of the 2012 story at JP Morgan. You may remember the London whale and it was a $2 billion trading loss out of the London office of JP Morgan because of a human error. And I think it was like an input error where they just, they traded way more shares than they had meant to. They added an extra comma or zero or something to, to the trade execution. But long story short, it resulted in a $2 billion loss. What I thought was so incredible about that was the way that Jamie Dimon addressed the issue. So context, 2012 is when financial institutions were the number one most hated organization on planet Earth. Why? We had just come out of the financial crisis. There was bailouts and TARP money and people losing homes and jobs. And a lot of people didn't really understand, meaning most Americans didn't understand the complexity of the financial system and what occurred. What they knew was that it was the bank's fault. So JP Morgan, good, bad, or indifferent, didn't matter. They were a bank and everybody saw them as, as the evil empire. And then this $2 billion loss comes out. And you think about when mistakes happen, a lot of people try to cover them up, tuck them under, avoid them, look for outlets to medicate, cope, deal with. And what Jamie Dimon said, I thought was so important, it has been a life lesson I've carried ever since that moment, that was 10 years ago. He said, we're gonna admit the mistake, we're gonna learn from the mistake, and we're gonna move on from the mistake. Because the reality is we will all make mistakes. You'll make mistakes in your investment portfolio, in your budgeting, in your spending habits, in your career, in your marriage, in your parenting. But what happens is when you identify and recognize and you have that self-awareness moment of I made a mistake, Admit it as fast as, as possible. Learn from it. I, what happened here? Why was this a mistake? Who did this impact hurt? Uh, what could I have done different? Uh, and then move on. And now take the next step to move on. That's easier said than done on a, on a podcast. But the reality is that that will 
inevitably be the formula for growth and change. Well put, well put. And you know, Andrew, it's, I'm getting nostalgic here because I remember the, I didn't remember it until you said it. I was like, oh my God. And then, and I, what I took from that, if you would ask me the, the, the cold hard facts about that, all I do, all I do remember about that until you just gave us some details was, it was called the London Whale. And I remember Jamie Dimon saying, hey, we made a mistake. We're going to address it. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And we're going to move on. Like, and, and I really admired him. I, I you know, still do. I mean, it, it's, he just has that attitude that's, that's, it's the right idea, right? Like, what are you going to do? You gonna, are we going to you know, talk about it for another 30 years? We're going to beat somebody up. We're going to fire somebody. If we're going to, we're going right. to, and then we're going to move on and make sure it doesn't happen again. Right. All right. So that's it. Speaking of mistakes, <laughs> Russian oligarch Abramovich apparently poisoned after attempting Ukraine peace talks. So there's a couple articles here, one from Forbes, one from the Wall Street Journal, both kind of saying the same thing. But I wanted to bring this up today, Andrew, because it's a little Hollywood, right? We were talking before about Abramovich and his own- a little A little Hollywood. On last week's podcast, <laughs> I said that this is going to be turned into a Jack Ryan movie. It Someday. And now it it's, is it, with the facts that we knew a week ago, now it's come out and it's like him and like these other uh, advisors to him in the Russian, uh, you know, oligarchs are all being poisoned and like meetings with peeling skin. And it's like, like what is happening right now? So, like somebody is, is preparing a script. Yeah. So for a little context, folks, um, Abramovich owns part or all, I believe, of the Chelsea Football Club. And uh, they were with the sanctions. Which is one of the most valuable sports franchises on the yeah, planet. Yeah, what did they say? About $3.5 billion? Is that what they're valuing? Yeah. About $3.5 billion valuation. Now, this recent article goes on to say that uh, Abramovich has an estimated net worth of 7.8. Do the, the quick and dirty math here. This football club is half of this guy's net worth. You know, half of eight billion. Well, whatever. We're not feeling sorry for him. But my my point is with this: um, if they're trying to poison him, what what does that do to the value of the club? Meaning, that, well, obviously, there's different sides in this war, right? Let's call it what it is. It, it, Abramovich is trying to sell the club because of the sanctions. And we actually asked a question on the, on the other episode, you know, who gets the money when he does that? Right. And why are they trying to poison him now prior to that? I mean, obviously it's so much more complex than we'll ever know, but I just thought it was interesting that, you know, we're segueing like the, you know, this Hollywood story of, uh, uh, of the forced sale of this football club. And now we add another like espionage element to it. Um, it looked, well, they, I mean, there were so many complexities around the sale anyway, right? It's a forced sale. There's sanctions. Uh, they're trying to create special, um, special considerations to even allow negotiations and deal. It's attracting, some of the highest profile bidders and investors around the globe, U.S., uh, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Britain, all over Europe. So it, this is a super, super, super high profile transaction that's about to go down. And the complexities of just the transaction in and of itself would have been enough for a great five-part Netflix series. Now you add on the this like, potential threat on life and a hit and where is this coming from and who stands to benefit and 
you know, who could have orchestrated this and was it even real or is this just some more fanfare and are they trying to delay something? It's like, this is that, this is now a studio pick getting released nationwide uh, in every theater from, you know, Maine to California. Yeah, I, I, and I think there will be some unfolding of events in the, in the weeks and months to come, of course, uh, with uh, Abramovich and the sale. Um, just, just a wild story. But stay tuned as that unfolds. Let's go to the more more coming from Russia. This is from Market Watch. We must ask ourselves now what happens to Russia and to the U.S. if Putin falls. This was a really fascinating article. So there is essentially three questions uh, posed. So the first question is. So U.S. intelligence, it's they, they forecast the, the run-up uh, to the war, which they predicted spot on. Why more things weren't done? We can say that for another podcast or somebody with some more political commentary. But what's going to happen if he falls? Like who's who now takes over the leadership role in Russia, who is still a very prominent world powerhouse? Right. And, and, and that... I don't want to jump ahead too far here, but that brings us to the last question. Could the Russian economy ever be integrated with the West again? Obviously, these are all related. And Andrew, what I found fascinating about this article was, you know, first of all, let's let's address that this is an op-ed, right? It's not it's not a a statistical analysis of, you know, historic leadership in the Soviet Union and what its effects are on the world economy. But it's a general 30,000 foot view of what could happen if, if Putin is, you know, gone from power in the Soviet Union. And obviously we don't know, but, but the, you know, the desire, I think optimistically for anyone including the Russian people, would be integration with the West. Now, this it sounds like the Puppies and Rainbows uh, last chapter of this kind of hellish nightmare of a book that we're, that we're seeing unfold right now, but is it possible? Well, we can remember Gorbachev, the Soviet leader who tried to open up things and introduce the West to terms like perestroika, and Glasnost, I remember those right? Cold War in the '80s, right? Like it was very fascinating um, to how how things were seen, and we had a lot less information back then, right? During the Cold War. So um, the the thing is, though, there's a culture clash with the West and the East, and even after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, the Russians had 30 years to integrate, and they really didn't. Right, the the economy's lightly integrated. Right, certainly we're seeing the effects of of the sanctions and uh, those economies. They're they're not in times of war. Those economies fail to integrate, and they actually conflict with each other. Right, so. And and the the point is, think they had every single opportunity to be able to do this, right? They were welcomed into the G seven. There was trade uh, relations established. There were certain exports coming from Russia, imports going to Russia that would allow now for theoretically a more open border. But it 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 was a failure to launch, and I think the failure to launch is the the cultural integration part of this. I mean, think about dating back to Cold War era, both sides of the the equation have been overwhelmed with negative propaganda towards the traditional uh, culture and sovereign state 
on the opposing side, meaning Russia towards the West and the West towards Russia. So when you hear things like for your average American, the KGB, you think, oh, those are like the bad guys, right? It's like, well, says who? Yeah. <laughs> like, how? What, what are we defining that by? And ha- like, well, why? And there was even the attempt to now kind of rename the, the powers to be, right? So today, Russia's power comes from Putin's United Russia Party, right? The army and the FSB go back and it was the Communist Party, the army and the KGB. So it's it's like, hey, we're, we're trying to rebrand some of these things, but I don't think that the West cares because you still have kind of these cross-generational leadership that still views, you can call it FSB, but we're thinking KGB. Right. You can call it, you know, Putin's United Russia Party, but it's the Communist Party. And whether, whether that is true or not is irrelevant, that is the perception. And I think those cultural uh, tensions is what makes integration a lot it is. harder. Well, it's, it's generational, like you said, and, and that's going to that's gonna continue on for quite some time. I mean, look, it, people of your age, my age, uh, we, we can remember. Do you see Hot Tub Time Machine? <laughs> I'm going to give you a little movie reference for the Hollywood edition. I, anyway, they, these, this I did, but I, I, I don't know what you're going. Hot tub time machine. I'll try. You'll remember, I forget the yeah. guy, the character's name, but the, you know, the Chad Tuckett kind of ski instructor in there finds a, finds a can with a label on it that looks like it's in Russian. And he's like, Oh, they're spies. They're right. It's, that was the enemy, right? Red Dawn, the whole, you know, the, everything, all the propaganda, I don't, I don't call it propaganda, but all the, um, all the attention that was focused on it, Russia. It is, it is propaganda. Yeah. Well, we, we were we were taught. The, Again, and even propaganda has like this negative connotation. It that is just the the media influence on cultural per you know norms and perceptions. Yeah, and 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 a short fifteen years later, I would say, uh, I, I think it was it was quite common to to be you know hanging out with people that came from Russia in, in Los Angeles or in the United States, right? They were, they were the, the more diversity that it provided, um, that, that cold war kind of propaganda was, was forgotten. However, in the Russian economy, stemming from the fall of communism, the problem was that those same people that could integrate socially maybe we're not able to integrate financially because coming from a communist downfall, it it is natural to assume that there's going to be some kind of fallout of, uh, of understanding and better said corruption, right? So corruption has permeated the Russian economy for two decades now and with Putin's rise to power and his uh, blind eye towards that or maybe even uh, supporting that kind of oligarchy right that's that's why we're in the problem we are today but again looking forward optimistically as this article is trying to do you know Russians being major producers of wheat corn fertilizer how will that integrate with the West and you know I, I think he nails it with the question is the person that replaces Putin someday, right? Putin's not going to live forever. When and when, when right. and who that person is replaced, uh, that will be the tail of the tape on on how they proceed to either integrate with the West or keep on doing what they're doing. I, I think it's going to be a long road. Yeah. 
Yep. All right. Let's go back to another uh, former episode with uh, article number four here. We're going to talk about billionaires are already going nuts over Biden's wealth tax. This article from the Daily Beast. Uh, we talked about it before. Yeah. But let's reiterate what we. So we're, we're, we're now. <laughs> yep. So we're, we're going back to this conversation of the taxation of unrealized capital gains. So this is a huge benefit and a uh, very common tax strategy for many investors, not just the ultra rich, but essentially current and under current tax law, you pay taxes on the appreciation of your capital assets, of your investments, stocks, bonds, real estates, only once sold. And what Biden is, uh, the Biden administration is now proposing is to tax unrealized capital gains. So tax the appreciation of assets on individuals, not just billionaires, but individuals worth more than $100 million, which is is really significant. And you may th- listen to this and be like, oh, well, $100 million. Like, but $100 million is one-tenth of a billion dollars. It's not a, those people are not billionaires. They're 100 millionaires, which again is still a substantial amount of money. But this isn't, this isn't just the billionaire tax rate because there are only, what, 26, 2700 billionaires or so in America, which is a very, very small population. But take that, that standard down to a $100 million household net worth, and now you've got thousands, probably tens or hundreds of thousands of, of Americans that this could affect. Well, the, the thing I found fascinating about this and, and always have since they started talking about it, Andrew, is I can't find the details here. And I, and I think it's because it's, it's being proposed in this nebulous fashion of the antithesis of what you said about there's 2,800 billionaires in the United States right now. It's, this is playing to the emotion of those 359 million other people that are not billionaires, right? And they go, yeah, yeah, let's just tax them, right? It is so complex to be able to tax somebody on their net worth. And these articles often use these two words, which I find just worthless. Certain investments for unrealized gains. That's a big, that's a, what is it? What are those certain investments? Are they individual stock holdings held for 12 months or more, right? Which would formerly be a long-term capital gain, right? But they're not going to be long-term capital gains. So why is any billionaire, and if these people control 75% of the stock market's wealth, these 10% of people, then what are you really going to do to the manipulation of stock prices? I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a scary road to go down. Right. And, and the, uh, Leon Cooperman, uh, said in an interview with the daily beast, why don't they eliminate the F and loopholes in the tax code? I gotta say, it sounds like a scorned billionaire, but I think he makes a lot of sense, right? Because if we go down to the, the, the problem that everyone has is that, marginal versus effective tax rates aren't fair. Elon Musk's uh, effective tax rate was 3.27%, while Bezos was 0.98%. We discussed marginal versus effective in a previous episode, uh, but you know we can see that the effects of the tax loopholes make these billionaires 
tax effective tax rates so low that I think it it upsets people and rightly so, right? Because they're they're not well, and and it and we're 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 comparing. The, my problem with this is this whole idea that the the term true tax rate came from this ProPublica publication that uh, came out in 2019 or 20. And it's where they cited the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, tr- what they call true tax rates, which is is complete and total baloney in the way that they are manipulating this, right? So lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? Great episode. Go back, listen to that. But what they are trying to communicate and have people believe, which is untrue, is that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are paying a a effective or, or income tax rate of 3.4 or 0.9%, which, which is untrue because they're they're taking this this rate in relation to the increases of their total net worth, which may or may not have anything to do with, with income, which is also true for millions and millions of Americans who have homes, 401k plans, IRAs, pension programs, like your wealth increases year over year, particularly in the years that they're citing, 2014 to 2018, geez, like let's cherry pick the greatest five-year period, four-year period for stocks, particularly these two individuals' companies that that they started. And I, I would argue that Many many average, you know, middle class, upper middle class Americans also experienced very similar and even lower true tax rates, quote unquote. Uh, and that that's what really starts to like kind of grind my gears about things like this is they're taking percentages of numbers that aren't rel- like average Americans are not typically calculating. Because when you're thinking about your tax rate, you're thinking about, hey, my CPA told me I'm in the 25% tax bracket and I paid an effective rate of 17% this year. Like that's, so you're thinking, I paid 17%. Jeff Bezos paid seven. Last year, and we talked about this before, last year in 2021, Elon Musk paid more taxes in actual dollars than any American in the history of American taxation ever, period, forever, period, billions, period. But, but <laughs> like, is that impressive, though? Because I, I would argue, Andrew, that from an English standpoint, that seems about right, right? If he's the richest man in the world and he's the richest man that ever lived, he should be the person that paid the most taxes in the history of the world. I get that. I don't, I don't disagree. Yeah, but I, And I think where, where the... The wealth tax where people don't understand is is that you're trying to merge two different tax systems under one, and we don't understand what you're talking about, meaning that income tax is one thing, capital gain tax is another, right? And I hear people all the time, especially this time of year, right? People go and do their taxes and they go, hey, Bill, you know, I I paid whatever, $20,000 in taxes, right? on my income last year, on my income tax. That's what they call it. Maybe not, right? Maybe they paid zero in income tax because of the standard deduction, et cetera, but they paid $20,000 because they sold some stock or some mutual funds that incurred capital gains. Meaning that if they they incurred $20,000 in capital gains tax, meaning that they made $115,000 on the sale of an investment. Now, 
add three zeros to that and is Jeff Bezos, or let's say some middle-sized 100 millionaire, right? Maybe not a, a Bezos or a Musk. Is that person going to perform the same function of selling that stock? And what effects do, does that have on the economy? So if you're, if you're worth 100 million and you own three companies that employ 40,000 people, and you are the primary shareholder of that company's stock, or, or, or of all three, you may not, if you're going to be taxed on it anyway, then maybe you sell shares of that company. Is that good for the company? Is that good for the 40,000 people that work for the, those companies? Probably not, right? So this is going to have whether... It, forget forget 40,000 people. Amazon employs 1.1 million people just in the United States. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's, that's a significant contributor to jobs, payrolls. And, and I think you're right. If, if billionaires and business owners are start taxed on their, like a lot of that money has been used to fuel future growth of Amazon, which has now allowed them to employ over a million people. Let's, so I think it, I think it's, it's a lot less controvert, like politicians try to make this a super controversial topic when it, it really shouldn't be, right? Yeah, and it, it should be. It should be math, right? There, there should be no emotion on this. It should be fair. A taxation system should be fair, and I think the argument here is because when you when you have any kind of statistic, you have a mean, you have a medium, and a median, and then you have extremes. When you get to the extremes in any statistic, you're going to find anomalies that are upsetting to the mean and or the median. And that's the problem. You said about 1.1 million people being employed in the US with Amazon, Andrew, and I thought that was interesting because that's you know a fraction of the United States population. Uh, that's worldwide, I believe, but as a fraction of the United States population, we're talking maybe you know almost 1% of the countries employed by Amazon. If you throw Walmart in there, you're probably up to about 2% of the countries employed by these two companies. And segue this with the conversation about Russia and the economy and what's to come and one and a half percent of the world's oil supply is supplied by Russia. Do these things have an effect in such small percentages? Well, in the short term, the perceived effect is is greater than what the effect is in the intermediate term, but in the long term, the effect will be greater than it is in the short term. That much we know through history. That's right. And that, that, that becomes the problem with politicians creating and pushing legislation and the way that they, I mean, you can call campaign, but it's the way they market this stuff, right? They're just marketers and they're marketing their policies to the American public. And because they're, they're always thinking two or four or six years ahead to the next election cycle, it's a constant short-term sightedness to fulfill their constituencies, belief systems and rally votes and donations and funding and things like this instead of that, hey, what is going to be the 30, 40, 50-year impact of, of yeah. this? Well, and we, 
Come on, politicians. Yeah, but here's here's the here's the bottom line. They're gonna they're gonna find more loopholes, right? There's already you can't stop borrowing against your uh, against your shares of of your own company or the different kind of promissory notes that can go back and forth to facilitate uh, missing out on these taxes, or better said, avoiding these taxes. We'll see. Right. All right, folks. Andrew and I are going to grab a long way to lunch on the Sunset Strip, and hopefully you can leave some thoughts, feelings, like, comment, share with a friend. For Dollars and Sensibilities in Hollywood, California, I am Bill McBride. And Andrew Martz. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.